Farmers are the heartbeat of rural America. Congress recently invested $20 billion in America's farmers and ranchers, focusing on conservation practices and profits for future generations. Today, these funds are at risk. You're squawking over $20 billion. That USDA program, it's investment into the future for everybody. If the funding was eliminated, it could hurt farms and families. Tell Congress, protect this generational investment in the Farm Bill. Learn more at investinourland.org. Paid for by Invest in Our Land. Hello, Nerdcasters. I'm your host, Scott Bland. And this is an old doo-wop group singing about Rip Van Winkle. From that fable about a man who fell asleep in the woods one day, as one does, and when he woke up, his life had gone by. The world had changed. This is how the story goes. Listen, my children, and you will hear. There's also something in this version about a chipmunk in a bowling alley. (laughs) Anyway, uh, what on earth is my point, you might say? Well, the somewhat surprising Super Tuesday results that we saw few days ago. Joe Biden taking a delegate lead, uh, winning in 10 states, crowded field of Democratic presidential candidates clearing. It made me think about Rip Van Winkle. Because if you'd been asleep for more than a year and you hadn't been watching all the considerable twists and turns of the Democratic primary the past 12 months, the Democratic primary coming down to Joe Biden versus Bernie Sanders would have seemed like exactly what you would have guessed. And then, hey, maybe you would have gone back to sleep and, and woken up the next year to see who won. But if you have been watching, you've seen all these debates up and downs, Warren's temporary surge, Buttigieg's temporary surge, Klobuchar's temporary surge, Joe Biden running out of money. You might think that Joe Biden's commanding Super Tuesday results seem to blossom from nowhere. But we have Elena Schneider, who's going to be here to tell us the story behind that story, a fascinating one. But first, we are going to talk healthcare. Politico, healthcare, White House, and Congress reporters have been covering the coronavirus and the government's response to it. And Dan Diamond, one of Politico's ace healthcare reporters, author of the Politico Pulse newsletter, is here with me to break it all down. Hey, Dan. How are you, Scott? I'm pretty good. I'm pretty good. Uh, So let's get right into talking about coronavirus. (laughs) Are are you sure you're good? Or maybe you'll get less good the more we talk about this this outbreak. I think that is the likely outcome. Maybe we should put on some glass. (laughs) All right. So, Dan, I think the thing that you're really well positioned to tell us about is how the government is handling its coronavirus response and particularly how it's presenting the appearance of that response versus what the actual response is. I would argue, Scott, that the lab test failures have been the single biggest story in the government's response or lack of response to the coronavirus threat. This disease spreads silently. There are people who might be carrying it and can spread it and infect others without even knowing that they have it. There are also many people who contract this coronavirus and have respiratory problems or fever or cough, the ability for officials to be able to test and identify who has the disease, who's spreading it, it's it's a way to figure out who's at risk. And my colleague, David Lim, our colleague at Politico, broke the story a couple weeks ago that the lab tests that the Trump administration had sent out were not working. And that has become a major focus of efforts now just to 
make sure we have the diagnostic capability to scope the problem. And can you explain a little bit about how this works? I mean, I, I think, you know, to the extent that people have, you know, an understanding of this, it's a, you go to the doctor, you think you might have strep throat, you get a swab. What's what's different about the, what What does the government have to be doing in order to, uh, you know, disseminate uh, tests for this? Is it because it's a new virus that, that it's a little bit more complicated than just, you know, heading to your local physician? Because it's a new virus, new tests need to be created. The CDC, the Centers for Disease Control, designed a test rather than using a test uh, developed overseas by the World Health Organization. The U.S. decided it wanted to go its own way for various reasons that may be good or bad, but that was the choice. The CDC then rolled out that test to public health laboratories around the country. So maybe in Washington State or California, there are a couple labs there that can do testing. They got the test kits from the CDC, but found as they were testing the samples that the results were inaccurate. And it's not clear exactly why that happened. There's an investigation into what went wrong. But in the interim, it meant that to do the testing, local officials needed to send the samples down to CDC headquarters in Atlanta, where the test did work. But that created a bottleneck that slowed down the effort to really get a sense for how many people had coronavirus. And it also forced the administration, forced CDC to say, look, we only have X number of working tests, so we can't test everybody. We're going to have a very thin, small criteria for who we're going to check out. And a lot of people who didn't meet that criteria have now turned out to have coronavirus and didn't know it. So, Dan, given all that, the testing is obviously the main point. What else is is the the government response to coronavirus uh, consist of? Let's talk about the positives and then circle back to some things that weren't. Okay, that sounds like a good plan. weren't, Weren't done as quickly. The Trump administration did ask for more money, emergency money, to fight the coronavirus spread. This is done by previous administrations too, whether Ebola, H1N1, need money from Congress to invest in vaccines, diagnostics, tests, whatever is needed for the fight. Trump administration request, as we first reported, was pretty darn low. It it was a billion dollars in new funding. The actual amount that Congress is setting aside is $8 billion. The other positive step that the Trump administration has taken most recently, making other tests available. So a hospital, a sufficiently advanced hospital or, or a clinical lab, a commercial lab, could come up with its own lab test, but the Trump administration had not given the go-ahead for these other organizations to do that, and that slowed down the testing process too. So if I'm looking, Scott, from the positives to the negatives, one failure here was a failure to plan around the CDC tests uh, not working. And I've talked to a number of current and former officials who say this was a failure of scenario planning. Why was there not a plan B, plan C? So testing could be implemented around the country. Dan, la- last question. Sitting in the, in the middle of the federal government, as does the response, is Donald Trump. What is his role in the middle of everything as the government tries to get a handle on this? Scott, it's a great question because the president and his team have been concerned for weeks about the effect of coronavirus, not just the public health effect, but what this would mean for his election. Nancy Cook, sure. guest on, on this podcast, has teamed up with me and written a couple of stories here. The White House saw this as a black swan threat, that, that term about the unforeseen event that could reshape the 2020 electoral race. As a result, his team has brought some political pressure to bear around the response, wanting to make sure that warnings were not too dire, that the economy would not plunge, and has made several shakeups over who is leading 
the fight. That is a Trump decision. Initially, it was Health Secretary Alex Azar, someone that I cover day in and day out on my beat on the health team. He was replaced last week by Vice President Mike Pence. As the public face of, of all this. And as the private leader, as the mm-hmm. leader of the, the internal White House planning. That decision was made abruptly. Nancy and I were first to report, came as a surprise to Azar and his team when he was replaced just a few minutes before a White House press conference. But bring it back to Trump, President Trump has issued conflicting information about the threat of coronavirus. About a week ago, he said there are only 15 people who have coronavirus, which was actually not true. The number of Americans was higher. But by Saturday, he was admitting in a different press conference that this is going to spread. This is going to affect the community. And the president's decisions or lack of hard decisions around who is going to be the leader. Right now, we have arguably a few different ones with Alex Azar, Mike Pence, a third person who's a coordinator. And the president's unwillingness at times to tell it to the American people straight has set back public health communication and has a lot of people in America thinking that this is a political story when in truth, it is just a public health story. Dan, thank you for laying that all out for us. I think we're probably going to be having you back soon to talk more about it. I I hope we're uh, all healthy enough that we get in this room together. But if not, there's always, always Skype. There we go. Thanks, Dan. All right, we're going to switch it up for segment two from coronavirus to the campaign trail. And as we talked about at the top of the show, it was a big, big, big week in the 2020 election. And we've got national political reporter Elena Schneider here to talk about it. Thanks so much for having me. All right. So to start this, I want to take us to this past Sunday night. Uh, where were you at about 6 p.m.? And and I guess we should preface this by saying you have been covering Pete Buttigieg and Amy Klobuchar for Politico for a y- over a year now. That's right. So I was uh, actually magically at home for the first time in what felt like uh, two months. And I had been working a lot of that day focused on reporting out with my sources, trying to get some behind-the-scene details in preparation for some obituaries, which is sort of a, a morbid term, but nonetheless appropriate for the end of Amy Klobuchar and Pete Buttigieg's campaigns. We knew that Super Tuesday was looking really grim for them, really tough. We just sort of didn't know when around that time they might pull the plug. But I have to be honest, I mean, it was a pretty big shock um, when I got a tip that Buttigieg was going to be dropping out. I all of a sudden started texting every single senior staffer and congressperson in my phone. Um, my hands were shaking so much that I had a hard time literally <laughs> typing it out. Right, because, you know, you were we, were we were expecting this. We've been planning for it. We just weren't expecting it on Sunday. Right, right. <laughs> so it was just a very fast-moving, sort of like, oh, my God, we have to do this as fast as humanly possible sort of moment, and got it confirmed, um, got the story up, tweeted it out the news. And then that's when sort of the really hard and, and more interesting part came, which was trying to figure out how he came to that decision. And then also just in the process of report, basically this kind of kicked off a, a waterfall of – New developments over the next 24 hours. Oh, yeah. So Pete's decision, um, I don't, I'm sure politicians don't want to say it was because of that. It wasn't. I think that all these candidates were having their own. It was the beginning of the waterfall. That's right. Their own separate conversations with all their campaigns, campaign managers about what their path forward was. And I think that, you know, South Carolina and Joe Biden's uh, 30 plus point victory there, margin there, really was a watershed moment for these campaigns who are all sort of competing for being the Bernie Sanders alternative. That that sort of evidence out of South Carolina, the absolute 
you know, crushing victory that he had, particularly with the support he had with black voters, made it clear that all these campaigns really didn't have a viable path forward. And so the question was, you know, how, how do they do this? So we, first we had Pete, then we had Amy Klobuchar by mid-afternoon on Monday. We had to- Tom Steyer, we can't forget Tom Steyer, who happened a few days before, few days right? before that. Um, then obviously Mike Bloomberg um, the day after Super Tuesday. And of course now on Thursday, we have Elizabeth Warren, who's decided to drop out of this race. Right. And now as Klobuchar dropped out, she endorsed Biden. Buttigieg endorsed Biden later that Monday. And the reason we're going through all this is because it's impossible to talk about what happened on Super Tuesday without talking through this consolidation of support behind Joe Biden before voting happened on Super Tuesday. And, you know, it's not so much necessarily that these candidates were endorsing him, you know, maybe with the exception of Amy Klobuchar in Minnesota. There aren't very many candidates who, who like, you know, can buy by their will, they, you know, can command like legions of voters to like uh, vote for a particular person. But I think it was emblematic of what what you just said, Elena, that was going on after South Carolina when people were uh, a lot of kind of rank and file Democrats were looking at what Joe Biden did in South Carolina and seeing a signal uh, that that he had, you know, he had kind of passed some sort of test that they were looking for basically to to throw in. We have to remember that there were an extraordinary number of people who um, who either did not vote early or held on to their ballot until the very last minute because they wanted to wait for every last piece of evidence that was going to come in, every result out of every early state, every poll that was going to show who was going to be the best candidate to vote for to go up against Donald Trump. Because Democrats you know, have been obsessed with this notion of electability since the very beginning of this race. And we've heard anecdotally and then also seen the evidence borne out and in, in, even in California where all these people we saw were holding on to their val- ballots until the very last minute. We knew that there was going to be a lot of late-breaking movement. Even anecdotally, I have uh, four family members who live in North Carolina, all of whom were voting for for you know, different people leading into um, the final election day, but they all waited until election day to make their vote and all ended up voting for Joe Biden because even though they had all separately supported different candidates, ultimately decided that based on sort of how the lay of the land was looking, that they thought he was the best candidate to support. And, and, you know, emotionally, too, I think voters want to support a winner. They want to support, they want to vote for the person who's actually going to be the nominee. And so I think a lot of people waited and you know, not only was South Carolina a clarifying moment, but also seeing all these candidates come together behind one person. If you weren't going to be for Bernie Sanders, it became very clear what your option was. And I think, you know, you, you bring up Sanders. And um, this brings me to something I kept thinking about on Super Tuesday night while we were all at work and then as I was heading home. And it, it's that the the Bernie Sanders movement, which he has built, which is so potent and and powerful, is not the only source of energy in the Democratic Party. And I think that Sanders supporters sometimes forget that. And, and and it's certainly something that you and I talked about a lot in 2018 when you were covering the House of Representatives and the, the Democratic battle to flip the House. Uh, when obviously, <laughs> we, we know we lived through it, there was a ton of energy behind many of those candidates. And very few of them were part of what you would call the, the Sanders movement. Yeah, that's absolutely right. I mean, and I, and I think it was hard to remember at times in 2019 in this fractured field where like, you know, Sanders had built this big thing and was kind of recoalescing it as he started another campaign after 2016 and everyth- everything else was so well, but it was kind of like hard to remember sometimes over the past year. Well, the trouble with primaries is that it often gives um it, 
the loudest voices can often have the biggest impact in terms of shaping the conversation. And sometimes those loud voices aren't necessarily representative of everyone. And we undoubtedly saw, or I undoubtedly saw throughout all of these House races, how much energy there was behind candidates who were no me, no way anything like Bernie Sanders. I mean, even thinking back to 2017 and that Georgia special election, what was the most... Oh my gosh. <laughs> I know, taking us real back here. Time capsule. Um, the most, that became the most expensive House race in history. And John Ossoff was not anything close to a Bernie Sanders sort of left-wing candidate. In fact, there were those options in that Democratic primary that didn't win. And he was somebody who wouldn't even sort of initially wasn't even clear if he was going to support Nancy Pelosi. That's how much he was worried about being sort of seen as, as a Democrat. And ultimately, he lost. But the point is, is that that drew an enormous amount of attention, enormous amount of money. And that then continued on through every House race that was competitive in 2018. And, you know, the people that I met that were activists there were not just Sanders supporters and people who had been active in, pre- in in politics for a long time, but there were moms who had never volunteered before in their lives who were turning their houses over into being call centers uh, for Abigail Spanberger in Virginia. Um, there were people who had just sort of devoted their lives to this because they were activated by Trump for the first time. So I think that there, certainly Sanders' support is, is, is wide and active and loud and young and diverse now, which are all sort of improvements on what he had sort of put together in 2016. It's really a powerful coalition. It's part of the reason why he's now going to be one of the two frontrunners. But it's not the only force in this in this party. Yeah. And I think, I, you know, the, the events of the last week crystallized that in a way that, again, um, it was I, th- I think it's been easy to overlook at times uh, over the past year, year and a half. Uh, so now we've got all these candidates that, that just dropped out. Elizabeth Warren dropped out like 30 minutes before we started taping here on Thursday. It's really just Biden and Sanders now going forward. Tulsi Gabbard is also still hanging around, but she's not pulling a ton of support. What happens next? Give that crystal ball uh, a little just, shine I'll for dust us. it off. Yeah. Um. Well, let me, let me let me put it this way. We've got, you know, next week coming up, we've got Michigan, uh, we've got uh, Mississippi, Missouri, Washington State, you know, kind of looking through the, the primaries and, and, and debates to come in the next few weeks. Like where 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 do you see things going? Yeah, we've got two more Tuesdays of a lot of states who are going to be voting for the first time. So we've got Super Tuesday 2, which is on March 10th, and then another one on March 17th, where we've got states that are going to be weighing in for their first time. One place that I'm going to be keeping a close eye on is Michigan. This is a state that Bernie Sanders won in in 2016, it was it was a, a huge surprise that he was able to topple Hillary Clinton there, and I think that if he is able to bring in those voters who were either uninterested in participating in 2016. And part of the reason why that state flipped for Republicans in 2016, and it's certainly a key part of the Democratic firewall or blue wall, I should say, that they envision former for, firewall, right, <laughs> for rebuilding in the Midwest that they need to do if they have any hope of actually retaking the White House. That Michigan's going to be one that I'm really keeping a close eye on. But we've got a number of states now moving forward where these candidates have to keep collecting delegates. We're going to see what kind of impact the debate is going to have in Arizona in a couple of weeks. And but yeah, it's a two man race now. Yeah. I mean, the really interesting thing about this, you mentioned the debate in Arizona on the 15th, I believe. So there's all these states that have primaries before then on the 10th. And I think we talked a little bit about this with Laura Baron Lopez on Super Tuesday night, but about how the real concern for the Sanders campaign had to be, you know, if Super Tuesday was just catching Biden at a moment in time, still on the upswing, right? What does that mean for the states that are coming next? And if you don't have a debate until the 15th, you have to try and do something between now and then to 
change the the way the primary is heading. And we saw that on Wednesday morning with Sanders uh, doing two things. Uh, he launched attack ads against Biden on Social Security and on trade uh, that are airing in, in Michigan and, and elsewhere. That's kind of a pretty straightforward thing. And then he did something that I thought was even more interesting. He launched an ad that featured former President Obama praising him. Bernie is somebody who... For just the whole straight 30 seconds. I, I think it was clips from the, the speech Obama gave at the DNC yeah. convention in, in, in 2016. Uh, and that caps off with him saying, I'm feeling the burn. That's right. That's right. Yeah. That's right. Feel the burn. This is not unique, right? We've seen Obama, to be clear, has not endorsed in the 2020 race, although I think pretty much every candidate has put out an ad of Obama saying something nice about them. But it was particularly interesting to see Bernie Sanders doing it. Right. I mean, it's not a surprise because Obama is the most popular figure in Democratic politics right now. But the flip side is that Bernie Sanders certainly has had a... uh, not a typical relationship with the former president. And there was reporting done by The Atlantic that said that he was considering a a primary challenge to him in 2012. That's something that came up during previous debates, something that I'm sure will continue to come up in future debates since Joe Biden is going to be the one trying to prosecute that case. And look, it's, it's, it's a real, it's a little bit of a It's a striking moment that he is aware that he needs to do something to broaden that tent, that he needs to try and pull in people who were supporting Pete Buttigieg, Amy Klobuchar, Mike Bloomberg. I mean, maybe for Mike Bloomberg supporters, it's a little bit too much of a stretch to go to Bernie Sanders. But, you know, it's also important to remember that voters are not as ideological as we like to sort of neatly put them in boxes for. And he's trying to make that – he's trying to – that's a way to offer that invitation is by bringing in the most popular Democratic figure and say, look, Obama liked me too. Mm-hmm. And I mean, to, to your point, and I think maybe this will be our, our final point about voters not really fitting in these ideological boxes, uh, I think even w- with Elizabeth Warren dropping out and our colleague Alex Thompson's first reporting on this is that she's not sure if she's going to endorse at all, much less who she would endorse. But you know, for all this talk about – Warren and Sanders competing for the progressive lane over the last year. It's not entirely clear that her supporters are all going to like flock on mass, on on mass, on mass, in mass, to, in mass yeah. to <laughs> uh, to Sanders now that she's out. No, I don't think that there's any clarity that that's where they're going to go. I mean, you wouldn't believe how many Warren Pete supporters there were. Biden Warren support. I mean, it's just it doesn't neatly break down into those boxes the way that we sort of as people who want to try and understand voters in mass, as you say, want them to do. As I attempted to because, say. Because they're humans and they are driven by things like, you know, I want a woman in the White House or I want, you know, I really like Elizabeth Warren as a person, but I, you know, it, it's just, it's a lot more complex. And I think that where those voters go, how that support disperses itself is going to be fascinating. I think it's undoubtable that we're going to see a huge efforts on the part of Bernie Sanders to try and capture some of that support because I think that they know internally that that is not a sort of given that they're suddenly going to pick up all of that support. Big, big thing to keep an eye out uh, going forward. All right, we got uh, more primaries on March 10th, debate on March 15th, more primaries on March 17th, and on and on and on. Elena, thanks so much for coming in to preview all that for us. Thanks for having me. All right, that does it for this episode of the Nerdcast. Our producers are Annie Reese and Adrian Hurst. Our senior producer is Jenny Ament, and our executive producer is Irene Noguchi. Our illustrator is Bill Cookman. If you're listening on Apple Podcasts, please do us a favor and leave a review. It helps new listeners find the show. Hey,